Okay, so we've had some longer than normal sermons the past several weeks. We'll make up for that today with one that is a little bit shorter. This morning we'll be finishing up the introduction to 1 Thessalonians, and we don't have a whole lot more to cover in that introduction, uh, but some, and uh, so that's why it'll be shorter. And the fact that I need to get to a big tournament by 1 o'clock has nothing to do with getting out early today, just for the record. All right, uh, what do you remember from last week? How about a little quiz to get us started? How many love quizzes? Aren't they? I should just like do them every week. What, if we're on paper? Pink, pink, pink paper. You remember the pink quiz? That goes back about 25 years. All right, so which came, we'll start with something easy. Which came first, First Thessalonians or Second Thessalonians? Actually, there's some debate about that, so we'll talk about that later today. All right, how many chapters? Five, very good. The letter was written by Paul, but he names two other co-workers in his introduction. Who are they? Beautiful. All right, Paul had three missionary journeys. This church here in Thessalonica was founded, founded during which of the three? Second. Multiple choice, which of the following best characterizes the tone and content of the letter? A, they are being scolded for their infighting and divisions. The church is fragmented and Paul offers um, instruction on building unity. B, they are being warned about a dangerous teaching that has been worming its way into area churches. C, they are being praised not only for growing in the faith, but also for standing firm against persecution. D, they're given instructions on how to prepare for Paul's next visit, which they can expect within the next month or so. All right, they are being praised for growing in the faith and enduring persecution. All right, where is Thessalonica? A, between Antioch and Jerusalem. B, in Macedonia, near Philippi and Berea. C, across the river from Ephesus. D, on the island of Cyprus. All right, in Macedonia, near Philippi and um, Berea. All right, true or false? Thessalonians, have a blank. Good. All right, true or false? Thessalonica was one of the earliest cities to venerate the Roman emperor as a god. True. True or false? First Thessalonians may have been Paul's first epistle, having been written within 20 years of Christ's death and resurrection. All right, well, true, this is not something we discussed, we talked about last week, but it was information that we covered not that long ago, if you will remember the survey we did of all the books in the New Testament back in the summer of 2008, <laughs> we talked about that, <laughs> and it was on August 31st, so, um, so the, uh, either Galatians or either, Gla either what? Yeah, your vacation. Probably on August 31st, probably about three-fourths of the church, right? So the earliest letter of Paul is either going to be 1 Thessalonians or Galatians. All right, the folk song, Keep Your Eyes on the Prize, refers to the imprisonment of Paul and Silas in Philippi, A, or B, Thessalonica, or C, Berea, or D, none of the above. A, because he was not imprisoned in Thessalonica and he was not imprisoned in Berea. Okay, he was imprisoned in Philippi. So as we remember the story that we went through it last week, 
they were chased out of town, but they were not actually in prison. How many know this folk song, Keep Your Eyes on the Prize? Danny, you know all 40 verses, don't you? <laughs> There's at least 150. Paul and Silas went to jail, had no money for the bail. Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on. Don't know. Be a hero, save a whale, save a baby, go to jail. Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on. Nobody knows it. We need to, we need to work that in. We got to work that in. There's got to be a way to work that in. All right, one more, true or false. Understanding the occasion that prompted Paul to write the letter is a waste of time. The only thing necessary for proper interpretation is to pray before you read it and then ride the wind of the Spirit. All right, be careful how you answer that one. True or false? All right, all right, so enough on the quiz. Let's now... Review the occasion. I know we spent a lot of time on it last week, but it's, um, this is, um, uh, it is very important to just keep in mind the whole backstory, what it was that prompted Paul to write this. And as you will remember from last week, the church at Thessalonica was founded around 49, 50 AD during Paul's second missionary journey, as we talked about, a mission trip that involved both Silas, a prominent leader in the church at Jerusalem, and Timothy, a young man who joined up with them partway through this journey. Their time in Thessalonica was quite fruitful. Several Jews and a large number of Gentiles responded favorably to the gospel, even some women who were known to be important figures in the city, and before long, Paul and his team became citywide news. Because of this initial success, we can assume that Paul and his team were hoping to stay there for some time. However, everything came to an abrupt end when a group of influential Jews, jealous of the reception they were receiving, gathered together a mob of thugs and started a riot in the city, claiming that these out-of-town drifters, these out-of-town preachers who drifted in, were teaching people to defy Caesar and serve another king, a rival king named Jesus. So a local man named Jason, who hosted Paul and his team in his home, was arrested along with some other believers. They were eventually released after posting bond, and we can assume that their release required a guarantee that these out-of-towners would not cause any more problems. So the local brothers feared that Paul and his co-workers were facing immediate danger, and, on, and on, regarding them, Paul's team feared that uh, their own presence there in that city would only cause more trouble for these believers, and so everyone felt best for um, them to leave. So we need to imagine the heartache that everyone felt in this. Friendships are being formed. Everyone is enjoying a special bond as brothers and sisters in the Lord. They loved Paul. Paul loved them and Silas and Timothy as well. And now all of that has come to an abrupt end. There's no going away party. There's no prayer meeting to send them off with God's blessing. The three of them hastily pack, up, pack their things up and slip out of town during the middle of the night. They head southwest to Berea and then eventually to Athens and then on to Corinth. And for the days and weeks and months that follow, Paul is just going crazy, wondering how they are doing. Are they being persecuted? How bad is it? Are they sticking with the faith or are they giving up? I sure hope not. If remaining faithful, are they growing in the Lord? All of these things, he just misses them terribly. And this abrupt separation from them, coupled with his anxiety about them, is just intolerable. It gets to the point where he just has to know. 
He simply cannot stand it any longer. And so once Timothy joins up with him in Athens, we're traveling back from Berea, Paul immediately, wastes no time, sends him back to Thessalonica to find out what's going on and to bring him back a report. Now, Paul wants to go himself, but as we know, he can't. He can't risk the hostile reaction from his enemies there, and it would certainly escalate the hostility toward the new believers there, not to mention that Jason and the others who had posted bonds, that those bonds would most likely be revoked and they would all be rearrested and facing prison. And so this is why he sends Timothy. So Timothy heads out from Athens back up to Thessalonica, spends a little time with the new believers, and eventually makes his way back to Paul, who now has moved on from Athens to Corinth. The report Timothy brings back is a positive one, one that brings Paul just so much joy, so much relief. He is just overwhelmed. Filled with appreciation for them and gratitude to God, Paul immediately follows up with the letter to them, the letter that we know of as First Thessalonians. So again, knowing the occasion, the backstory that prompted Paul to write the letter helps us to better understand its purpose, and understanding its purpose will, of course, help us to understand its contents. And there are several reasons why Paul wrote the letter, but the primary purpose is rather obvious. It is that of conveying his joy and gratitude. He wants to affirm them. He expresses his overwhelming joy that they are hanging in there. He encourages them to stick with it. He compliments them for their perseverance. He conveys to them his own personal love and appreciation for them. And he goes on record thanking God several times for what he has heard about them. And if you've been reading the letter the past couple weeks, um, then all of this will, of course, sound familiar. None of Paul's letters convey more warmth and personal enthusiasm for his readers than this one. It is worth noting his repeated use of brothers when addressing them. And I counted at least 17 times. That's a lot in just five chapters. So Timothy heads back to Thessalonica to deliver the letter. And as Paul's representative, he would have been the one to read it to the congregation upon arrival. Um, um, most of those in, his, in that congregation would have been illiterate. It may be best actually to think of 1 Thessalonians as something like a script from which Timothy would have read aloud from, recreating, as it were, the presence of Paul and Silas. And Timothy could convey the emotion and nuances of, of uh, expression that went into that letter. These are things that he felt as well, but having heard Paul dictate it, he could convey that also. So let's now turn our attention to how the book is structured, how things flow from one subject to the next. Again, Keep in mind that this is a personal letter. It is not a theology lesson like Romans. He is not scolding his readers like Galatians. He is not correcting false doctrine like Colossians. This letter is one of expressing joy, offering encouragement, giving thanks to God. It is informal. It is relational. It is warm. It is friendly. And so like most personal letters, it isn't going to have a formal and precise connect the dots from one point to the next point. Whatever structure it has, it's going to be quite a bit more loose and relaxed. That's just what we would expect. So there are a number of ways we could title the various sections, but I opted for more informal headings in this, given the informality of the letter. First, your faith has greatly encouraged both us and others. So again, it is evident that God is working mightily in your midst, even in the face of hostile opposition. 
It moves on there to our time with you speaks for itself. Did you see anything that would give you the slightest hint that we were exploiting you for money? So again, this, as we talked about last week, this was an accusation that some outsiders were making. Number three, your persecution is not unique to you. Believers everywhere are currently sharing in the same suffering. Hang in there. Don't give up. That moves on now to absence has made our hearts grow fonder. Our time of separation has been intolerable. I very much wanted to see you again, but the enemy is preventing that from happening. This is most likely the expression, what is meant by the expression when he says, Satan, Satan prevented me. Uh, number five moves on to this. However, because of the good report about you, uh, we can now move forward. I'm talking just not logistically, but uh, emotionally. Up till now, we have been outside ourselves with worry. And now that now we have been released from that anxiety. Moves on to this is how we pray for you. This is a familiar prayer there. And it's one that we often use here as a benediction at the end of our service. So that prayer will be familiar. This, moving on to the seventh section. Don't forget our instructions regarding purity, love, and hard work. And then this familiar passage in chapter 4 that you will know, temper your grief with this important truth. Loved ones in the faith who have died will be resurrected when Jesus returns. So yes, we grieve, but we do not grieve like those who have no hope. This then moves on to the, nat the natural thing of we must all keep awake for his sudden coming. And then it concludes with final instructions. Um, along with gratitude and encouragement that dominates most of the letter, another ongoing theme is this anticipation of Christ's coming. In fact, each of the letter's five chapters end with a reference to his return, as we see here. And it appears that somewhere along the way after this letter that uh, the, they arrived at some wrong conclusions about all of that. Paul receives an alarming report at some point concerning a false teaching that is being spread among the believers there in Thessalonica, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. And furthermore, this particular teaching contributed to a problem that had plagued some of the readers there, and one that Paul addressed in his first letter, and that is the problem of idleness. Some were in the habit of not working, not living productive lives, and if the day of the Lord has already arrived, then, well, why work? And 2 Thessalonians is Paul's response to those two problems. <clears throat> All right, let's now turn our attention to the composition of this church. That is, who are these people that Paul is referring to? Um, you know, who, who, who are these people? Uh, this information is also helpful in understanding both the letter's tone and contents. <clears throat> so the account in Acts, if you will remember from last week, states that some Jews were persuaded and came to the faith. Not many, but some. But many God-fearing Greek men did. Some translations render it a large number of God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent women. Some translations render it a significant number of leading women. Um, instead of prominent women, some ancient manuscripts read wives of prominent men. Whatever the case, this is mostly a Gentile group. 
There are some Jews, but it mostly consists of Greeks, in particular God-fearing Greeks. So these would probably be Gentiles who believed in Yahweh, attended the synagogue, and strived to live by the moral laws of the Jewish faith. Now, keep that in mind because there appears to be somewhat of a glitch here. The letter itself seems to paint a different picture than the one we find in Acts. When Paul addresses them as a whole, he praises them in chapter 1 for turning away from idols to serve the one true God. The picture given here is conversion from full paganism. So which is it? Well, the apparent discrepancy can be explained, not all that difficult, once we take into account the fact that the gospel continued to spread through the city. The first converts were, of course, by and far, as the account in Acts gives us, uh, God-fearing men. Uh, but after that, new believers would be those who had been entrenched in everyday paganism involving, involving the worship of idols. So as we know from the book of Acts, um, going through the whole, when all of Paul's journeys here, missions, when he would visit a city, whatever it might be, he would typically go to the synagogue first to present the good news about Christ. His original audience, therefore, would consist of both God-fearing Jews and any God-fearing non-Jews who might be in that synagogue. And typically, they would be the first to respond favorably to the gospel. That's just was how the, the pattern that he used. And in this case, and this was the case in Thessalonica as well, as told in Acts 17. However, the church there continued to grow after this and after Paul and his team left the city. At least a year, if not two years, have now passed from the time the church was founded to the time that Timothy brings back a report to Paul. So we can expect that a lot has changed, and no doubt Timothy fills him in on all these changes. And that is why he makes the comment about turning away from idols. Timothy has observed the growth and what this composition of the church is, and, 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 the, and because that would be true for the most part at this time. Does that make sense? <clears throat> All right, so what else do we know about those? Don't read that yet. So what else do we know about those who make up this congregation? Well, according to New Testament scholar Gary um, Shogren, at the time Paul writes this letter, the average member, not every member, but the average member would look like this. Would have been a Gentile, would have been converted from a pagan background, would have spoken common Greek as their first language, could not read or write, worked manual labor, perhaps as a slave, had no experience really with the Jewish synagogue, had now upon their conversion pledged themselves to an ethic, a way of living that was sharply different from their local environment and their past, shared his faith with unbelievers, suffered harassment from family and society, and knew someone who had been physically punished, imprisoned, or maybe even killed for the faith. So <clears throat> having that picture of this congregation's makeup in mind, um, you know, proved, at least to me, to be proved quite helpful when reading through this letter, because I would picture myself in that congregation as I would read it, as having it been read in that way. <clears throat> so along this line, it's also possible, we don't know, but by this time, there have been, may have been more than one congregation in that town. Christians would have gathered together in homes for teaching, prayer, worship, and fellowship. Um, because of limitations of space, it is conceivable that there may have been several of these assemblies at the same time. Uh, the charge at the end of chapter 5 to have this letter read to all the brothers 
would imply that there was more than one assembly. But on this, we can't say for certain. <clears throat> I'm going to have to start reducing my sermons to 10 minutes because that's when I start losing my voice. <clears throat> Josh, when are you finishing seminary again? Working You're working on it. <clears throat> All right. Next item, authorship. I don't remember this slide. That doesn't go with that. Okay. <clears throat> Blank slide. This is what my notes say. So, <laughs> All right. Next item. Losing my voice, losing my brain, losing a lot of things. My attention. All right. Did Paul really write this letter or was it written by someone else decades later? This always comes up. You know, was somebody just using Paul's name in order to give it some sort of credence? So skeptics like, of course, you know, they like challenging the authorship of Paul's letters because it's one of the ways that they try to discredit them, and this in turn so as to discredit the Bible itself. Regarding Paul as the author of this letter, well, there really hasn't been all that much objection to that, not any serious objection. Some have tried. One objection argues that the letter can't be from Paul because it is so disjointed. He just, you know, the author just jumps from one theme to the next. It's hard to follow the train of thought here. And why, for example, would a short letter like this one need two different sections where the author is thanking God for his readers? It seems to be both redundant and superfluous. So that's an argument. Uh, one so-called so solution to this disjointedness is to claim that the letter is actually a composite, that is, someone simply stitched together several shorter letters from here and there, pieces of letters, and so based on this theory, certain experts will try to reconstruct the original letter by rearranging these shorter parts, and in so doing, they claim that the letter is actually about something else, like refuting Gnosticism, for instance. That's one theory. I don't know how they get there, but that's one. So these attempts might be uh, really, they might get an award for being novel and creative, but they are based solely on speculation, and they have really failed to get any kind of tra traction. The best solution to this alleged disjointedness is to simply take into account the kind of letter that it is. We've already talked about that. Paul is not writing as a professor of rhetoric, but as a concerned father in the faith who up till now had worried himself sick. His exuberant tone was due to his overwhelming relief that this church has avoided disaster, and it was driven by a great deal of emotion, and we should not expect it to have a, a, cleanless and, a, a seamless and clean outline because, again, it's a personal letter. It's not going to be one that is going to be organized in a sharp and crisp way. And to the accusation itself that Paul did not write it, well, we just simply have to stand back and just ask a simple question. Why would someone other than Paul write a letter like this? <laughs> the letter makes no sense at all unless it was Paul who wrote it and that it was written to the believers at Thessalonica. Not to mention that the contents line up really well with the events recorded in Acts, as we saw last week, which further testifies to its authenticity. Another small debate, somewhat related, deals with the arrangement in our Christian Bibles. That's the first question on the quiz. A small minority has argued that while, uh, while both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians are authentic, actually written by Paul, their order in the canon is backwards and should be reversed. In other words, as it is claimed, 2nd Thessalonians was actually written first. So you might run into this, um, but we'll just take a quick minute to address it. Even if that were true, 
It would not change anything regarding the way we accept both letters as God's holy and inspired word, but it might affect some of the ways we would interpret the contents of the letters uh, themselves at, some, at certain points. One of the main arguments concerns a comment that Paul makes at the end of 2 Thessalonians, where he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And it is argued that Paul would have been more likely to have autographed his first letter to them than his second letter. Another point is, that is raised deals with how the canon treats what we could call these sister letters, like 1 and 2 Corinthians, 1 and 2 Timothy, 1 and 2 Peter, the three letters of John, and 1 and 2 Thessalonians. In each case, the longer letter is always placed first. Uh, but that practice is misleading if indeed a shorter one was actually written first. And so it is argued that we should not make any assumptions based on the arrangements in our Bible. Uh, there are other parts to this theory, but, it, but overall it has failed to really win any support. When you read 1 Thessalonians with Acts 17, it becomes pretty obvious that 1 Thessalonians was written first. All that just makes sense. And then there is this. Paul addresses the second coming in the second letter, and what he says really does sound like a response to something that the readers misunderstood in the first letter. And so again, there are sound reasons to believe that the order we have in our Bibles is the correct one. All right, finally for this morning, and to, to conclude the what needs to be covered as introductory material, let's take a quick look at the rest of the story. This doesn't really have that much of an impact on how we read the letter itself, probably none, but there is more to the story as we piece uh, things together from Acts um, and 2 Corinthians and what takes place after this letter is written. And if nothing else, it just kind of eliminates the sense of having certain things left hanging. So eventually, about five or six laters, it appears that Paul was able to revisit the church there again in Thessalonica, and this would be during his third missionary journey. And we're not given hardly any information about this. In Acts 19 and again in 20, Luke simply says that Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia. And scholars assume that in so doing, he would have visited the believers in Thessalonica because that's the main city in Macedonia. In a second letter to the Corinthians, Paul refers to that part of his trip saying, when we arrived in Macedonia, there was no rest for us. We faced conflict from every direction with battles on the outside and fear on the inside. So it's a hostile environment. Again, it's easy to assume that he's referring to the towns he had, um, he had faced earlier on and where he suffered great hostility and um, opposition, namely Philippi and Thessal Thessalonica. Now, the last reference in the New Testament to Thessalonica is found in 2 T Timothy, Paul's final letter. There he mentions someone named Demas who had deserted him he doesn't elaborate on this, so we don't, know, we don't have an idea what the story is behind all that. What we do know is that after deserting Paul, Demas went to Thessalonica. Not to join up with any Christians there, but probably it was just a good place to hide out given how large the city was. And this is the last mention of that town in the New Testament. Now, as a note of interest, completely unrelated to our study of this letter, from about 1500 to 1700, Thessalonica was host to the largest Jewish colony in the world. And in 1943, much later, under Nazi occupation, nearly the entire Jewish population of the city was deported and then executed. All right, so next Sunday, we are going to start in on the text itself. Um, we already covered verse 1 last week. The plan 
could change between now and then, but I'm hoping to cover all of chapter one. So we've got nine verses, and um, that means about four minutes per verse, maybe three minutes per verse. So, so what's your assignment? All right, read at least the first chapter, but I would prefer that you read through the whole book at least once this week and, and do it all in one sitting. All right, Joshua, all right, let's stand. I'm going to just dismiss this with that prayer that I referred to earlier, um, <clears throat> Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians. May the, may the Lord make your love for one another and for all people grow and overflow just as our love for you overflows. May he, as a result, make your heart strong, blameless, and holy as you stand before God our Father when our Lord Jesus comes again with all of his holy people. Amen. Upon those words you are dismissed, go in Christ's name, enjoy each other, and serve each other in love. <laughs>